Welcome to the Counselling Armchair, hosted by Counselling and Psychological Services at RMIT University. The Counselling Armchair is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations as the traditional owners of the land. This podcast aims to help you manage your university life so you can be at your best. We will be sharing with you tips on student life here and ways to enhance your mental well-being. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Counselling Armchair. It's great to have you with us. On today's episode we are going to be talking about a topic that is trending at the moment and that we know is on the minds of a lot of our students. In recent years in Australia there's been a steep rise in adults being diagnosed with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder or ADHD because of our new understandings of ADHD that ADHD traits don't just disappear when we become adults, and it's actually more common than we might think. ADHD affects around 1 in 20 adults in Australia, and it's one of the most common neurodevelopmental conditions. When you're a student with ADHD, things can get challenging, as many of the common symptoms like inattention and procrastination can get in the way of smooth progress at uni. But don't worry, we're here to help. We are excited to have with us today two wonderful RMIT counsellors, Bruce Diaga and Beck Hum. Our listeners might remember Beck from our episode on surviving the festive season, which is coming up again soon. So if you haven't already checked it out, the episode is called Jingle Bells or Jingle Hell. Ruth and Beck, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us in. Well, maybe just to start, Beck, would you mind telling our listeners a bit about you? Sure thing. So my name is Beck. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I'm one of the student counsellors with the RMIT Counselling and Psychological Service. Um, so you might have seen me around campus or also heard my voice in the Christmas podcast and also in some of our webinars that we run. It's a little cheeky plug for those. Those will be coming up, I think, at the start of semester one again. Um, I'm also part of the Neurodiversity Affirming Work Group at RMIT. Um, I'm passionate about supporting students with ADHD. Awesome. Thank you. So, so lucky to have you here. And Ruth, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. Um, so I am also a psychologist at RMIT CAPS. I'm at the Brunswick campus. I'm a newer addition, which is exciting, um, but I did intern here a little while ago. So it's very exciting to be back um, and working with students. I am also part of the Neurodiversity Affirmation Group. Um, and yeah, really excited to, to work with all different kinds of people, but also um, love kind of supporting people with ADHD, especially, yeah. Yeah, we, we are really, really happy to have you on the team. All right, well, maybe we should give it a go. Thank you for that um, intro, Melissa, and, um, and and great to have you here, Beck and Ruth. So let's just jump in with some questions. Um, and to start with, I think a good question is, Beck, what is ADHD? The million dollar question. The million dollar question. Buckle yourselves in. <laughs> Um, so ADHD is, um, stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Um, it used to be ADD, ADHD, so ADD hasn't been around for a while. You might still hear some people use the term ADD, um, which is Attention Deficit Disorder, often referring to the inattentive type. Um, but in our newest iteration of the DSM, which is our manual for how we diagnose mental health, um, it's referred to as Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. So... Um, ADHD is characterised by difficulties throughout the lifespan and across domains. So that means in different areas of life, such as school, relationships or work. 
Um, difficulties in sustaining or regulating attention. And you'll notice that I'm using the word regulating. Um, so despite the name, which is a bit of a mis misnomer, it's not actually a deficit in attention. It's not that ADHDs don't, they don't, can't pay attention. It's difficulty with regulating, so keeping your attention on task and sometimes very highly focusing on something. It's also associated, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, Beck, sorry to interrupt you. I was going to say, that's a very good point. Um, I, I, My daughter actually has ADHD and, and that's absolutely what I find with her. She can be incredibly focused sometimes, but then at other times just finds it very hard to stay on task. So as you say, it isn't that you can't attend. Yeah. It's just that it's difficult to regulate it. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, Keep I, going. I like it's, it's good to have it more conversational. And I agree. Yeah. I think that, you know, it's something really common is songs that but you can pay attention or they can pay attention to things they're interested yeah. in. And that's part of the interest led nervous system. If you're interested in something, that's where the dopamine is, which helps you to focus and concentrate. Ah. Um, and so it's actually directing the attention to where you want to go. Um, so yeah, difficulties yeah. with attention, Difficulties with impulsivity, so it's that kind of acting before you think, and hyperactivity. And I'll talk a little bit more about how they can show up in a moment. Um, a lesser known one as well is that it also impacts what we call our executive functioning. So our executive functioning skills, uh, what we rely on to plan, organize, and get started on tasks, and also our self-monitoring. So this is often where time management can come in, noticing time is passing, having mm. a bit of a concept of now versus not now. So there's three main subtypes. I said no more ADD, um, although some people will still use that language within DSM-5, not anymore. Um, the three main subtypes are ADHD predominantly hyperactive, so a predominantly hyperactive presentation, which we'll talk about in a moment. Predominantly inattentive, so someone has more of the difficulties around attention, but not so much of the hyperactivity. And the most common, which is the combined subtype. So I might continue my model a little bit about how inattention, hyperactivity and possibly show up, but please feel free to interrupt me. Yeah, please, Beck. yes. <laughs> yeah, this is fascinating. Yeah, no, it's um, it's so great. It's so great to learn about this stuff because you, the, the term does get thrown around a lot these days and a lot of people are wondering, you know, whether they have ADHD. And so this is really useful to sort of think about. Yeah, what is it actually? And what do psychologists, you know, look forward to understanding it? So, yeah, um, yeah. So from yeah, inattention, hyperactivity and impulsivity. So inattention often shows up. So difficulty paying attention to detail or making careless mistakes, having trouble staying focused on tasks or activities, difficulty listening and following instructions, even when being spoken to directly, um, struggling to organize tasks and activities. And that can also be your belongings as well. So then someone with a bit of a messy space, so put it down and the brain's already onto the next thing, put it down, all of a sudden everything's there. Um, and frequently losing things necessary for tasks, locking yourself out the house, leaving your school books at school, those kind of things. So that's the inattention side. One that's not mentioned in the DSM, but around there in terms of regulating attention can also be periods of really intense hyperfocus. So if you're really interested in something, it can feel almost impossible if you have HD to get your attention off that thing and can pay attention for a really long amount of time. Hyperactivity and impulsivity. Um, this is probably what more likely have been taught or thought about over the years with ADHDs, the stereotype of a young boy, you know, climbing over the chairs or making a bit of a ruckus. Um, it doesn't always... And a lot of people think, that's not me, so I don't have ADHD. Yeah, and this is it's often, it doesn't always, you don't always see it from the outside. So what that can look like is fidgeting or squirming in your seat, 
twirling your hair, um, tapping, difficulty staying seated. As an adult, often you can stay seated because of the social pressure, but find it quite hard to do so. Um, excessive talking is a less common one as well. So someone who might give a 200-word answer to a two-word question, that can be a bit of that verbal hyperactivity. Um, that's me for sure. That's a pretentious answer. Difficulty waiting turns, so frequently interrupting or intruding on others. And it won't necessarily be out of intent, not wanting to distract someone or not wanting to interrupt them to be rude, but just find it really difficult. You know, thought comes in, it comes out the mouth. Sometimes people people say to me in sessions that I just know what they're going to say, so I'm just going to jump in and say my answer because it's very obvious yeah. and, <laughs> and they're too slow. <laughs> absolutely, and so brain's working really fast and this can also, you know, working memory, so holding things in your memory for periods of time. So if I said, remember these three things, 20 seconds later, could you remember it? Um, working memory is also impacted with ADHD, so sometimes interrupting can be, if I don't get this out right now, I'm going to forget. Mm. Um, and I think the, it, for adults, it can often, this hyperactivity can often show up as a feeling of restlessness or difficulty winding down, particularly around sleep, which we'll talk about a bit later. I've got one final point to finish off my <laughs> talkativeness. I guess if I put it in, that's a bit of an overview of what ADHD is. So there's difficulties with, you know, sustaining and regulating attention and with hyperactivity or impulsivity. Being a neurodevelopmental condition, it occurs throughout the lifespan, so in order you know, for a diagnosis of ADHD, these symptoms need to be present in multiple settings. So not just at home, not just at school, not just at work, not just in relationships, but across multiple settings need to have a negative impact on your daily functioning and also need to be inconsistent with your developmental level. So what I mean by that is some of these things you might notice are far more common around small children, for example. For ADHD, we notice that it's more in excess of what we might typically expect from a neurotypical peer. Yep, that makes sense. A lot of people wonder whether they have ADHD and I think a lot of people look at these symptoms and think, but I do that, you know, because they are things that we all do at some point. And so what might be some signs that, you know, you might actually have ADHD and maybe maybe it could be a good idea to get an assessment? Yeah, so I think probably a big way that people are kind of doing that at the moment or seeing that maybe they want to have an assessment is by seeing videos online. Um, yeah, I think TikTok and like and Reels have been a real um, place of self-discovery for a lot of people. And I think that can be sometimes be um, like a bit of shame around that, like a bit of worry that that's not, um, that, you know, they'll be following a trend by getting, like further seeing if they're, they need more help or getting an assessment. Yeah, that's a really good point, Ruth. I think this whole idea of like jumping on the bandwagon or that, you know, TikTok ADHD kind of thing, like you've you've read about it or you've seen the video and now you think you have it kind of thing. But but in actual fact, you know, it's pretty underdiagnosed in Australia, isn't it? So, you know, it's, it's, you know, many people wondering about it may actually have ADHD. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, like what Beck was saying before that, you know, these are common human things that happen. We, you know, humans do forget things and, and sometimes our attention does wander. Um, but if it's affecting a lot of parts of your life and you're seeing yourself like reflected in a few videos, it's important to remain open that like this might not be something that, you know, you might not have ADHD. But if it's kind of feeling like really hitting you, like maybe it's important to talk to someone and actually get assessed. Yeah, so that can be a good one. Um there is also, I think, this, and something that happens for a lot of our students at RMIT is going to 
a, a different life stage, suddenly not having supports around them or suddenly things changing around them where maybe, mm. you know, existing problems were already there. Maybe they had the hyperactivity or the inattention before and they were losing things, etc. but maybe they had family around them or maybe they were in a familiar place and had strategies already and mm. suddenly life changes they start uni, something else is going on, or suddenly the demands are a lot more than they can deal with and life starts to fall apart at the seams. I think that's a really good point, which I'm slightly nervous about with my darling daughter <laughs> because, you know, there's absolutely uh, – we provide a lot of scaffolding for her, you know, reminding her of things, helping her out with things, kind of sitting alongside her while she does things that when she moves out, we just won't be as available to do that stuff for her. So students who are at RMIT who are studying and many of whom may be living out of home for the first time will, will lose that scaffolding that they've had that just helped them sort of manage the the more troublesome aspects of ADHD. And, and you're right, and that's when it might really sort of show itself as as being a, a real problem for Can them. I just jump in and say I think that's lovely just knowing. I just want to say I think that's lovely knowing in advance so to acknowledge that it is a change like even if you can acknowledge that that scaffolding has been there and that not having it there has an impact I think when you know that then you can put some reasonable things in place to acknowledge it and say okay you know if you're moving out of house or moving out of home for first time what are some of the things you might need support with what and even knowing that context I think can reduce a lot of the distress around saying yeah like this is a time of increased demand hundred percent. So true. I've a friend who has ADHD as well. And uh, he actually got a coach in, I'm jumping ahead to like strategies, yep. but we'll, we'll come, we'll get back on the train. We'll get back on the right track in a minute. But um, I just think this sort of relates to this point is that sometimes it's like just preparing for things and, and, and knowing what your own patterns are and then compensating mm-hmm, for those. Mm-hmm. So one of his things was about the, his room getting really messy was that he would um, take his washing basket to the laundry to do the washing and then he'd leave it in the laundry. And then then when it came time to have, you know, he generated more dirty clothes, the laundry basket wasn't there, so he'd just chuck it on the floor. Um, and, you know, it's like you, you think, oh, but that's pretty simple. You just go and get the laundry basket. But for him, that was that step he just couldn't do. And so what the coach said to him was when you go into the laundry, put the basket down behind you so that you can't leave the laundry without tripping over it, and then you will remember to take it with you. And he said, that changed my life. I kid you not. Mm-hmm. Like it sounds silly, but it really changed my life. And and it's like, you know, it, it's it's like, yeah, and knowing, okay, this might be a challenge and what is, you know, because, you know, when you're a kid, your parents are probably picking up your dirty clothes and taking them to the laundry, but maybe you would need to set something like that up for yourself when you're living out of home in a share house situation. And I love that because it's working with your brain as well. So it sets you up for success. It's it is. not like, just like, hey, let's just pretend that you don't have ADHD. It's well, how does your brain work and how can you maximize your space working for you? And I love that. It's not about that you need to try harder. It's just like, let's make this work for you. Yep. It's it's knowing this is this is my brain style and this is how I work with it rather than it being a, a blaming or, or, you know, something that's wrong with you kind of thing. You work with it, you accept it, you be okay with it and then you know to put things in place rather than going, why should I need to do that? Other people don't need to do that. It's like, well, so what? I do need to do that you know, and having more of that attitude. Absolutely, which I think has been a really great shift these last couple of years. We, we touched at the start neurodiversity affirming. It's just occurred to me that people might not be aware of the terms neurodivergent neuroaffirming. Oh, yeah, that's probably good Good to explain that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's often used kind of, um, they're often used interchangeably. They do mean different things. So um, very, very 
quickly, neurodiversity refers to the natural diversity among humans, so in our minds, in our neurocognitive structure and functioning. So just the idea that with neurodiversity, we are all neurodiverse, and that's that our brains work differently and that there is a natural variation in our brain's like, function and how, how we work, and that that is both a good and adaptive thing. Um, so it's moving away from that pathologizing model. And neurodivergent is, it refers to anyone whose neurological development varies from the typical or the most common in the population. And there'd be things like ADHD, autism, so on. So neurodivergent, ADHD, autism, OCD, like anyone who's very much vary compared to the typical. Neurodiversity and neurodiversity affirming is just acknowledging that all of our brains work differently and that neither is better or worse. I think that's such a great, great shift because it is just about embracing our unique qualities rather than, uh, you know, unfortunately with a lot of psychological stuff, it's like we label things as disorders and, you know, dysfunctions and, you know, it's it's this sense that like somehow that's wrong or you're broken in some way, whereas neurodiversity affirming sort of way of looking at this is saying, no, that's actually not the case. It's just I need to understand myself, how I work in order to be able to kind of live life in the way that's going to make most sense for me and be most adaptive, um, which is a much nicer way of looking at it and much more true as well, I think. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's it's so, um, like, for people with ADHD or ADHDers, there's always, there can be this um, real criticism about the self, like this real, like, difficulty in like accepting that these are limitations, whether they've gotten messages from others or it's internally, it's just like, I should be able to do yes. all of this. And I think it's so hard to break away from that yes. kind of pattern, isn't it? Hard, very hard. Yeah, like a quite a sort of um, megalomaniac of an inner critic, yeah. um, many people with ADHD. <laughs> it's like vicious, really vicious inner critic. Yeah. If, if this resonates with anyone, there's also going to be a bit coming up about that around different... Yes. And approaches around that internal, like internalized shame or self-critic, because um, I think it's a really important point. Like what so the impact important. of you know, maybe navigating a neurotypical environment with a neurodivergent brain, like the impact that can have, which isn't necessarily the condition that's disabling, but actually the environment oh. in which we live and how that can impact. Yeah, like a fit, and not realizing that it's yeah. A lot of people think it's just that I'm yeah. There's a deficit in me. Uh, there's something wrong with me. But maybe the environment is actually the problem. The problem. That's yeah. It. Absolutely. And I think when we know, and I think that's my hope of what people take from today is, you know, to work to understand your personal brain better and to work with your brain um, because that saves a lot of secondary distress. And even using Liz's example of moving out of home for the first time, even if you can understand these support structures were there, they were helping. Yeah. You can put some in rather than just having this unrealistic expectation of, well, I should just do it myself, That's my right. friends can. Yes. Or everyone else seems to be able to. Yes. Like to take the shame out of it and take the shame put in out. place what works. Yeah, absolutely. And ADHD does have um, a bit of an impact. I think certainly on the study arena, doesn't it, Beck? So, mm-hmm. what, what do you think of the impacts of ADHD on study specifically? Yeah, I, I think this is a. A really good question and mm. you know particularly topical given that we work at a university so I'm imagining a lot of our listeners are university students um, I think that it impacts on study it can impact on study in a lot of ways um, one is just situationally a lot of people starting university are either school leavers they're living out of home for the first time so as we touched on earlier that transition from secondary schooling which is quite structured um, can be quite supportive and scaffolding 
all students, I'd say neurotypical or neurodivergent, so ADHD is otherwise, can experience an adjustment period where you move out of that environment into somewhere where all of a sudden, not only do you have all of these increased kind of adulting demands, so your own self-care, food, transport, work, juggling relationships where you don't see the same people every day, all of those demands, which put a demand on our executive functioning as well, um, come into play. You're also coming into a new way of learning. And I think this is where university study can be particularly challenging for ADHDers, is that there's not that, I mean, one, like difficulties with sustained attention and concentration. So things like online lectures and class, that can be difficult. Um, But there's a lot of things that require executive function, which is difficult with ADHD. So things like self-initiating, so you're motivating yourself to get to class, and oftentimes no one's calling if you're not there. Um, There's often that longer-term planning, so it's a lot of more self-directed study. There's less immediate reminders or immediate cost. Um, So you might, you know, have one assignment due week six or one that you're meant to have been working on for eight weeks. And so there can be a bit of a skills deficit that's hard there. Yeah, and and I I find that some people find that if it's a long project and they're not keeping up, they are panicking by the end and feeling also that maybe I shouldn't go to class because I've missed, you know, four weeks and they're going to check on me and I have nothing to show. And so... It can become a vicious cycle. It's such a cycle. Yeah. And, and I think as well that, you know, that time management side of things as well, because if you think about the ADHD brain, it's often motivated by urgency. So like, you know, do now, do now, um, and interest. And so if you've got something that's boring and not particularly urgent, it's going to be much harder to motivate yourself to be focused on without those external structures. The other bit is, well, like impulsivity, decision-making, I just said skipping class, you know, making quick choices, going, oh, I don't need to go there today. I'll do it later. Or forgetting, like simply forgetting. And so for students, you know, things like that project management, time management, putting things in place. There's a lot of stuff already at RMIT, which you might touch in around like different workarounds. Um, but things like the library often runs like study skills sessions. The RMIT website has them. Setting reminders to give yourself mini deadlines. Like, you know, I guess have your first semester and then reflect on what was the challenge. See where the challenges were. Yeah. Where are the rough, rough bits that need a bit of sanding. <laughs> yeah, I often say, to you, look, be proactive and, you know, come into, you know, go to your classes, try to get it set up from the start, look at all the resources. But if you've just had a semester which you feel didn't go well or these things came in, it can be really common that we start to internalise and self-blame. You know, I'm just being lazy, I should have worked harder. Um, that is a good time to look back on the semester and go, what was it that was actually hard? You know, was it remembering to get to class? Was it remembering the assignment? Was it actually, you know, whether it's peer mentoring, tutoring, stalking with your teacher, sometimes it's the getting started part that's hard for ADHDers as part of their executive function. So giving yourself a bit of a roadmap and planning time rather than just sitting down expecting yourself to do. Yeah. Yeah, all great points. And we will come to some more tips later. We'll give you some more ideas, everyone who's listening, um, to sort of help you navigate the environment. But um, yeah, all good points. And I think transition to study in general, just going from high school to university for everyone is a time when all of a sudden there's lots of freedom and there's not a lot of monitoring anymore. So uh, I think when you've got, you know, in high school and you haven't handed something in, they're going to go, where is it? Give it to mm-hmm. me, but that's not going to happen at uni. So, and often more demands. Got to do your own laundry. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so that sort of capacity to stay self motivated and on track is it, it's so it's calling, uh, it's a higher level of that than you have had then in high school. So that's where it may come a bit unstuck. Um, but yeah, good point to say. Well, you know, have that first semester and see what needs adjusting. <laughs> 
Yeah, and, and as we'll talk about later, know that there's supports as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, that would, that's a good segue. So I guess, Ruth, could you tell us about some maybe hacks or workarounds that people with ADHD might be able to put in place just to maximise their success at uni? Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, I think um, basically the things that work best are the things that work for that person. I think every single person is going to have wildly different workarounds that work for them as well. Um, So I really want to kind of say that. And I also want to acknowledge that often I think people with ADHD find that the workarounds start not working after a little while like there's this real sense of like wearing off it's like oh okay this lasted a week or a day or or you know a year and then suddenly it's no longer helpful like now my alarms I just hear them and they go straight through my brain and now you know that's it um so it's about having to really continue adapting and finding different things that work that's it yeah and I think that's a real struggle for people with ADHD because it's this kind of frustration of, oh, but I, I, now I have to be creative again and now I have to kind of, you know, do all this stuff and it's it's really hard to kind of come back from that. So I think um, what's what's great is to have an approach where you go, okay, for instance, my life is, is driven by novelty. It's okay to have a bunch of tools at my disposal to try different things. So it's kind of a nice idea to have a whole pool of things that you can draw upon and, 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 and give it a go to see if you can problem solve your life around you. So um, I've kind of put them into four categories um, that might be helpful. The first one is um, sensory stuff. So I think there are often sensory barriers and also sensory needs that people with ADHD often have. So for instance, with a sensory barrier, maybe doing the dishes is really hard because you hate the way that the water feels on your hands. Right? And that's a real sensory sensitivity that, that like lots of people don't manage or don't deal with. Um, so a really great way to address that barrier is to buy gloves, right? So you're kind of thinking about ways that, okay, what are my sensory things that get in my way? It's a nice way to think about it. And then also your needs. So if you're sitting down to study, what do you need? Is it a hot drink? Is it a blanket? How do you care for yourself in that environment? Is it going to be something sparkling? Do you have like um, uh, good textures or something that you can feel? Fidget uh, do toys. You need music. Fidget <laughs> toys, exactly. Yeah. Do you need music around you? Do you need a sing, hum? What like what is it that you need that, that gives you that enough stimulation that you can do whatever task it is? Start thinking outside the box. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I've had a lot of people say, I have to be watching a YouTube video on the side when I study. That's a really common one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it is really common to to have that um that need for external stimulus. Um, and a lot of adults, you know, they say, oh, no, I can do things quietly. That's fine. But often you actually find that when you when you ask them, you say, OK, well, you know, what about if you, you're not allowed to sing or hum or chatter? Like, do you do that to yourself? And they're often just like, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I like the idea of having a menu as well, like that you can choose from, that it doesn't always have to be the same thing. Yes, that's nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So it can kind of be uh, flexible around what's, what's going on for you. And then the second one is sort of external executive functioning. I thought that that example of the washing basket um, in front of the door, perfect example of that. So putting, knowing that the organisation stuff in the brain is like offline or like not exactly not working in the way that, that um, neurotypical people might expect anyway. So it's great to have things 
outside of you that organizes you. So things like something that you literally trip over or something that is within eyesight that reminds you to do a task that you know you look at every day. Um, and that can be alerts and alarms and sticky notes in really in different places. Um, and knowing that, you know, knowing that of yourself that it's hard to remember stuff. It's hard to to kind of key into certain tasks and, and plan things and organize things um, kind of easily and smoothly. So have that a little bit more outside of yourself and know that you might forget the things that you set up for yourself as well. Um, which can be a tricky, a tricky balance as well. Big fan of ex- externalizing. It's like function alarms, digital calendars, any like take the pressure off your working memory. Absolutely. And I've, I've heard about um, this term body doubling. Tell us about that. Yes. So this is where my last one or second last kind of. Oh, I jumped ahead. Of, Sorry. No, it's perfect. <laughs> it's brilliant. I love it. Um, external sense of accountability is a really big thing. So making sure that because it's so hard to self-motivate, it's really important to have that outside of you as well. Um, And a nice way is body doubling. So although it's not backed by research yet, um, it's something that a lot of ADHDers have reported is really helpful for them. And basically it's just when someone either sits by them and um, either kind of directs them to, to continue doing the task or is just there as someone who sits there and is a support and doesn't say anything, but you, you kind of feel accountable to that person and then you end up doing mm. a bit more work. So people like to do that in terms of just going to a library to study, um, whether that's studying with friends who you know are going to be like, no, we're studying now, we're not going to chat, <laughs> which is always a challenge. Yes. <laughs> study session can become a social session very quickly. So quickly, exactly. <laughs> um, and then also just um, uh, even telling someone that, hey, I've made myself a deadline to finish half my, my assignment um, and then telling that person if you did or didn't. It's okay if you didn't, but just letting them know so that you've got that sense of accountability, yeah. Yeah, nice. So that's like that could be that in that moment body doubling of sitting beside someone, but also you could kind of set it up in a way, set up some accountability to somebody else that's just going to say, I'm going to ring you at the end of the week and tell you how I went kind of thing. No judgment whether I did or didn't, but knowing that, you know, sometimes that happens with counselling. I've noticed some clients can kind of, in a way, the counselling becomes a body doubling thing because they come and I, like I do say to them, I'm, there's no judgment here whether you did or you didn't, but knowing that they're coming to see me and that I'm going to ask about it is enough to keep them on track. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. And I think it's really, it's really important to have those people in your lives who who you can say, um, like tell them where you're going and where, how, where you're at. It's when you're by yourself that it becomes a real spiral. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Ruth. Yeah. Um, I'm curious also about this term ADHD superpowers, which I've heard thrown around a bit. So, Beck, what's your take on that? Like what are some, you know, I guess some strengths or positive things mm-hmm. about having ADHD? Now, that's a really good question. I think the I've seen the superpower term around a lot as well. Um, it's a bit marmite in the ADHD community. So some people find it really empowering as a way of kind of reclaiming and taking back language and saying, you know, this is my superpower, this is how, you know, that there's no shame in the way that they work. Um, other people can find, just because it is so prevalent, can find it a bit toxic po- positivity or, or a bit invalidating about. Uh, and, and I think okay. this is often the line around neurodiversity that there's no right or wrong, by the way. So if you use it or don't use it, either is fine. I often say to people, just ask. If you're not sure what language, so if you're an ADHD yourself or you're talking with someone, just ask and say, you know, do you like this word? Does it resonate with you? Because some people say yes, absolutely. 
some some people say, no, actually, this has a really significant impact and I don't see it that way. Either fine. Yeah, um, good point. So individual. Yeah, yeah, and I think sometimes we can get a bit stressed about saying the wrong thing. I think we should treat everyone like an individual and just ask if we're not sure. But there are a lot of, like, strengths around for ADHDers and, you know, it's I think it's part of neurodiversity that there's a natural diversity among human brains and that's a good thing evolutionarily that we are different. Thank God we're all different. It would be very boring if we weren't. Yeah, absolutely. And so a lot of the like a lot of the difficulties in coming up around HD are trying to navigate a society that is unfortunately set up for a specific type of brain. So what we call neurotypical or majority presenting. And you know, a lot of the strengths when we can understand how our brains are that hyper focus on topics of interest. You know, so that often HDs have really broad interests and a real depth of knowledge. Because they'll see something, get really interested and go down in a black hole. So you be an excellent conversationalist. So how do you know about, you know, who the president of Venezuela was in 1928? There will be some people Googling that now. Um, but so that is one of them, being conversationalist. A lot of HDs are very enthusiastic, um, have a lot to say, have like a wide range of interests. A lot of HDs will, that also extends across to creativity as well. Um, so a lot of HDs in the creative fields. Um, and also around this idea of kind of working under well under pressure. So... You know, a lot of HDs can find, like, you know, the deadline kind of adequately stimulating. So they find, that, you know, that stress can actually, rather than being overloading, it might kind of bring up the baseline, they find they can actually function quite well in high pressure and high stress situations. Um, there's a lot of high profile HDs who might work in emergency medicine, who might work as a paramedic. They say, look, actually, I find that those kind of situations are adequately stimulating so I can focus really well under pressure. So they really thrive when other, other people might freeze or panic or... yeah. Freak out. Yeah, it's got that flexibility yeah. and adaptability to a situation that might be, you know, a bit unpredictable or have moments which are quite, you know, where you don't have to be on all the time, where it can be kind of go time and they can focus and be on and then they can wind down afterwards. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of strengths. Oh, I have another strength. Sorry if, if I can oh, jump yeah. in. Oh, please, yeah. no, dude, jump yeah, in. Yeah. I'm all about strengths. <laughs> I love it, good. Uh, with strengths as well, another one is like that real systems thinking. Like there's a... There's, yeah, often it's hard with the details, but ADHDers are often really good at understanding complex problems from a kind of outside view, um, and that can be really, really put to to work in in places like university where you're thinking about um, theories and structures and, and big problems. Um, means the details of university. It makes it harder, but yeah, um, it can be a real strength for ADHDers as well. That's so true. They can often be those like great ideas people you know, come up with those novel ways of looking at things. Mm. And so are there different symptoms or presentations between people assigned male and female at birth? Yes, there there often are. And I think we touched on it before, that stereotype of um, ADHD is that young, loud, disruptive boy. So I think a lot of the time, you know, these days, a lot of assigned female at birth have been diagnosed a lot later in life so in their late 20s 30s 40s they've become be missed by the system because they haven't like the medical profession just hasn't has kind of overlooked their presentations and um, a lot of women and AFAB people express hyperactivity differently or they seem to also have more inattentive features so they end up being called things like like a space cadet or a or off with the fairies um, but because they're not as disruptive they end up being missed by school systems and parents and that kind of thing so often they'll have more difficulties 
are paying attention or, or kind of regulating their attention or losing things, being kind of um, a little bit scatterbrained in that kind of presenting that way in school. But also their hyperactivity might be smaller. They might mask it a little bit better. Um, so there's often more masking for AFAB and, and, and women. Um, and there's lots of ideas about why that happens, but um, it might be socialising, it might be simply just biology or how how different people express themselves but um yeah there's often this masking of hyperactivity which means that they can end up fidgeting in a smaller way even in school or containing it all until they get home and then kind of um letting it all out letting it all out in one go (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) yeah so that makes a lot of sense i guess you know women tend to be more of the internalizers very stereotypically um yes yes the internal the externalizers sorry yes Um, so that makes a lot of sense exactly exactly and i think um that's like obviously it's generalizations, like every person is going to, and their personality is going to present differently and express their ADHD differently. Um, yep. But yeah, absolutely. I think women and AFAB people are much more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety and depression rather than ADHD. Yeah. Yeah. All really good points. Yeah. And I think that sort of brings me to thinking about maybe what some of the lesser known symptoms of ADHD might be, because as you said, we do know kind of the the big obvious ones around, I mean, it's in the title, right? Attention is in the title. So we're always going to be thinking about attention and the hyperactivity, whether it presents in a really big way or a small way. Um, But what are some of the other lesser known symptoms that we might not realise are part of the ADHD profile, Beck? I think the there's a lot of things that you tend to see clinically that might not be part of the diagnostic criteria, but really commonly either co-occur with ADHD or as part of ADHD. What I see a lot, particularly in uni students, um, and particularly those who are later diagnosed as well um, or undiagnosed, is a bit of an overcompensation. So in terms of coping strategies to try and manage difficulties around attention and difficulties around ADHD is it can lead to very rigid um, coping strategies. So a lot of perfectionism and a lot of anxiety Mm. where things work until they don't. And that might be someone who excessively keeps lists, who sets a thousand alarms. And so they're able to, I guess, with this overcompensation, it it works until it doesn't. And they're able to get everything done. And that's why the people might say, oh, you don't seem like you have ADHD. But the level of stress and work in order to try and compensate for those difficulties is really, really high. Um, so it's a kind of clinical perfectionism is something you see a lot and anxiety around, you know, a lot of anxiety around double and check, triple checking things. So not reminders. Right. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Um, that's often as well where, you know, when you come to university and you have all these competing demands, all of a sudden it's not possible to do everything, you know, as perfectly. That's when you start to notice more of the impact and where people might reach out. The other is around that. So, um, Rejection sensitivity disorder or RSD. Um, this isn't part of the diagnostic criteria of ADHD, but if you've ever been on ADHD talk or Instagram or anywhere else, you've probably seen something about RSD. RSD or rejection sensitivity dysphoria. As I said, it's not part of the diagnostic criteria for ADHD, but essentially what it is, it's a really intense and strong emotional response to feelings of rejection. So feeling rejected or criticized. Um, and this is something I would say most NHGs that I've worked with experience. Um, and that it can be really dysregulating and upsetting. And there's a social theory around this. You know, if you grow up with ADHD, you're often regularly getting negative feedback. Sit down, stop talking, mm. you know, stay in your seat. Mm, you need to do this. True. You're not doing it right. You're not doing it right, which can have a real impact on self-esteem. So RSD is one that comes up quite a bit and a lot of people relate to. That's perhaps a bit less commonly known. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think feeding into that emotion dysregulation. So difficulties with you know, identifying, describing or regulating your emotions, experiencing emotions to be quite intense. This is often part with the impulsivity and the emotion dysregulation that can occur as part of ADHD can be historically why some people may have been misdiagnosed, for example, with borderline personality disorder or another diagnosis Mm. where the other criteria might not have been there, but they might be seeing more impulsive behavior or difficulties with emotions that might have been better explained by ADHD. That's a really good point. Yes. And I certainly noticed, um, you know, not to get too personal, but with my daughter, probably some of the first things we noticed, we certainly noticed the inattentiveness, but it was this rejection sensitivity and the emotional dysregulation. And she would often say afterwards, after she's had a big reaction to something really small, oh, I I was overreacting. I get that now. I can understand. She's got like what you said before, Ruth, about having this great kind of ability to see the whole picture sort of thing. And she's got excellent insight. She can really put it all together. But in the moment, um, it's like the the gates are open and the emotions are just gushing. They're just gushing out. So, um, and I can see how that could easily be sort of mistaken with other types of diagnoses. Um, And and it's not something we would typically think about as being an ADHD thing. Definitely not, and I think so. I think that's important one for yeah, people to know about. Um, and thank you for sharing that as well. I always like your yeah. real examples of like how it can show up. Yeah, I think another couple of how hyperactivity can show up, um, particularly among people that might be more in, more of the internalized hyperactivity. So other people who are female or AFAB that might have less of the externalizing hyperactive symptoms. Um, one can be excessive talkativeness or verbosity. So you might see that in school reports, chatterbox. And that might you know, ask a yes or no question, you get a 200-word response, or talking really rapidly. So that hyperactivity can manifest as really fast talking or just a lot of volume and moving from thing to thing. That's not, even if your body is still, um, that's a really common one as well, is that kind yeah. of excessive talkativeness. Um, and the other is what we call, and if forgive me, it doesn't have a very intuitive sounding name, body-focused repetitive behaviours, so BFRB. Okay. Yeah. Um, and this is yeah. another way for saying, so things like hair pulling and skin picking are quite common. So there's a, ah. I won't get into science on it, there's a few different theories around this, but it can theorise to be occur as a bit of that internalised hyperactivity. If you can't get up and move, you might start to pull on your hair or pick at your skin to self-regulate that internal restlessness. And that's one that is quite common among neurodivergent folk is um, some of those body-focused repetitive behaviours of hair pulling or skin picking. Yeah, that's really good to know because I think a lot of people wouldn't associate that with ADHD, but they can be, that's actually quite common, I think. Yeah, I agree. And, and there's a lot of overlap as well, I would say. So some of the lesser known symptoms, there's a lot of overlap. So, you know, um, kind of ADHD and anxiety or ADHD and autism, for example, um, ADHD and OCD. So um, I think that's part of where skin assessment can be helpful because it's, you know, it's not just that we have one experience and therefore it automatically rules out all others. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it is complex, but you can tease it out. So what are some treatment options to manage ADHD? Mm, so there are a couple of treatment options. Uh, there's the medication route and then there's also non-medication options. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about medication. Basically, there are two types of medications that you can take for ADHD, which is the stimulants and non-stimulants. Um, stimulants are the most common and also often the most effective for people, like people find them to be more effective than the non-stimulants. Not to say that the non-stimulants can't be effective for some people as well. Um, They often are. But yeah, stimulants are often the the go-to and they can come in sort of long-acting or short-acting times. So um, either you take it and it lasts for um, four to five hours 
or you can take it and then it will last for about um, 10 to 14 hours. So there are kind of these two ways that people can use them. Yeah. And basically, generally what it does is it helps with making starting tasks a little bit easier. It can have a bit of a calming and an anti-anxiety effect for people with ADHD. And they can also slow and order some of the racing thoughts and help with some of the hyperactivity. Um, but not always. Some people experience a bit more anxiety when they're on it. Um, sometimes that's a side effect that goes away. And some people also experience more hyperactivity, especially with things like dexamphetamine, which gives a little bit more of a boost in um, energy compared to something like um, methylphenidate, which is, is a bit more sort of um, uh, has, has less of the, the hyperactivity inducing effects. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And so some of those non-medication options, what does that look like? I'm happy to jump in there if you like. So the non-medication options, we'd typically be looking at like psychotherapy. So, so you might see a psychologist or a counsellor for or ADHD coaching. So yeah, ADHD medication, it's very well studied, it's very effective, um, and it's often not an either or. Some people do medication and psychotherapy, some of them don't have as much response medication, might just do therapy. Don't have to choose between them. That's a good point. <laughs> so often people say, no, I want to, you know, deal with this natural, quote unquote, naturally or something else. And I say, look, you know, talk through the options, find out what works best for you. Um, there's no right or wrong. And there often is a good adjunct. So even if you're taking medication, therapy is a really helpful adjunct to that as well. With talk therapy, it most commonly would be what we call cognitive behavior therapy, which is an evidence-based therapy that looks at understanding the way that we think and the things that we do and how these impact on our mood and overall functioning. So what that would typically include would be some psycho psychoeducation on understanding ADHD, so what it actually is and how it might show up for you specifically. Um, it might be around different strategies or skills to scaffold and manage the impact of ADHD on your day-to-day -to -day life. Um, so ADHD-friendly time management, it can be really important to um, have a therapist who understands ADHD and you um, kind of has that lens because some of the standard you know, time management things might not be as helpful, such as buy a planner. Um, <laughs> not the only thing to do. I can hear like, the, the eye roll from a million miles away from going, oh, yes, the planner. It could also help a lot around so learning to work with your brain. So I've got functional self-care, um, which you might touch a bit later, but there are things like you know, understanding the systems that you might need in place or, you know, for example, the laundry basket mm, or putting mm -hmm. things in place just to kind of understand what are the things that I find difficult and how do I make those a bit easier and work my brain in my day-to-day -day life. And the other is around the secondary impact of ADHD is where therapy can be really helpful. So these are things like managing comorbid anxiety, depression or stress, um, understanding and processing any internalized ableism or shame. But also navigating the grief process, which is really common, particularly for late diagnosed ADHDers. There can be a grief process around, you know, the opportunities missed or the period of time of throughout life of not having that self-understanding and the impact of that. Um, so that's something I think that talk therapy can be really helpful for is, you know, kind of seeing the person on the other side of the diagnosis and helping to work through that. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Beck. And we're on our home stretch. So we've just got a couple of questions that we're going to squeeze in, guys. So we've had a very long conversation today, but I think we've said such important things. Just quickly, Beck, um, what would you say to someone who's wanting to get an assessment? What's the process to get an assessment? Definitely. Um, and this is a really common question as well. So in Australia, both so psychiatrists, paediatricians and psychologists can diagnose ADHD. If you're listening to this, you are likely over 18 years old and studying at RMIT, just on the odds of things. So 
Process-wise, you can see a psychologist through referral by your GP under a mental health care plan. Um, many universities also offer low-cost assessment and therapy clinics as well. So if you have questions about this, you're wanting to explore further, you can also reach out to the counselling service and we can help you support you with that information. What I often recommend, particularly if cost is a factor and you're wanting to access medication, is a psychiatrist is the only person in Australia who can initially um, prescribe medication for ADHD, so stimulant medication. That can later be transferred to your like the prescribing authority to your GP at the psychiatrist's discretion but to start with you will need to see a psychiatrist and they will often because they're prescribing the medication want or need to make their own diagnosis so if cost is a factor I have to recommend to people you know, get a referral to a psychiatrist and psychologists can help you with screening and also with the processing afterwards um, but from a medication point of view that prescription would need to come from a psychiatrist um, which would be a referral from your GP as well. So it's it's a really like GP is a great first step to start exploring this. Definitely. Yep. So I often say the gatekeeper of um, health in terms of got you know, of different places they can refer you to. And if they're not sure, you can always ask if there's someone at their clinic or a colleague who specialises in this area that can help as well. Fantastic. And so if a student has ADHD, what kind of supports does RMIT have to help them? So there are a few different things that RMIT has. So there's peer mentoring, where a little bit of that external accountability, a place to check in, keep you accountable, ask them questions and, and just get some study advice in general can be useful. There are also neurodivergent study sessions in the library where, you know, lights are dimmer and it's like quiet, but not silent so that can be a nice idea to go there as well and there is also an ELP so it's an equitable learning plan um, and basically it's a plan that helps you navigate study while you have um, a disability such as uh, ADHD and can help with adjustments and make study a bit more manageable um, and that's something that you can chat to the counselling team about or, or reach out to I believe it's the ELS team, Equitable Learning yes. Service team. Yes. <laughs> they changed their names a few times, so yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so those are some things that RMIT offer. Yeah, great. And we'll, we'll put a link to those in our show notes as well so that you can people can have a bit more of a look at what RMIT has because we do have good supports. We do, we do, and we may we may throw a few uh, extra resources in there as well, which we haven't had time to talk about today. Um, but thank you so much, Beck and Ruth, for sharing your wisdom with us on how to work with ADHD traits to maximise your study potential. We hope that you've discovered that ADHD doesn't have to get in the way of a successful academic career, and understanding yourself better can go a long way towards helping you create routines and systems for yourself to make study work for you. Just remember that there is as much variability in the ADHD population as with any population. And so there is no one size fits all approach. Each person's unique and individual ADHD profile will vary. So being able to identify your specific challenges and your specific strengths is a great start. Just remember that neurodivergence is just a natural variation in the way our brains work. So you might need to do things a little differently sometimes, but no matter how you do things, you can still reach your desired goals. We thank you for listening today and taking a seat in our counselling armchair. It's been great to have you along. Goodbye. Isn't life so amazing? Sometimes it can get crazy, but hey, that's okay. We've got another day to make mistakes and say sorry. There's no sense in our worry, cause all we can do is try our best to make it through with love.